The challenge we have now, and I think this is really, really important, is we're not in the same world we were in 20 years ago. We are now in an era of strategic competition. And that strategic competition is driven by technology. So we just can't leave it to the private sector and the profit motive because you know what? There's big companies in China with deep pockets that can buy a lot of our companies. And we don't want that. We have to protect our industries. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hi, everyone. This is Sid Finkelstein. Welcome to the Sidcast. I have a really interesting guest today. His name is James Apatharai. James works for NATO. And actually, he doesn't just work for NATO, but he now is the Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges. Emerging Security Challenges. What's that? That's cybersecurity. That's artificial intelligence. It's something called quantum, which James will talk about that is really kind of scary and amazing. His purview has a lot to do with what's going on in Europe right now and, frankly, Russia and their war in Ukraine which is something we talk about at length in this episode. James has been in the security field for NATO and before that for the Canadian government, Canadian Defense Department, well, for over 20 years, so over 25 years, really, and is a expert on cybersecurity, counterterrorism, and the security implications of climate change. He's really interesting and thoughtful. It's a type of episode today where the context is NATO, the context is Ukraine, the context is government. But the details and what we're talking about is stuff that businesses are worried about and thinking about all the time. And actually, all of us as concerned and interested citizens are also caring a lot about what are the security implications of climate change? What are these emerging technologies? Why haven't we been hacked like crazy in America and Canada and in Europe by the Russians who are upset with us for supporting Ukraine in the Russian war? And that hasn't happened nearly as much as maybe some of us would have expected. What's going on? What is NATO doing to support technological development? This is a really interesting point. Certainly in the U.S., there is a dominant model about how to support, how to build businesses. It's called venture capital, and it's headquartered in Silicon Valley, although it is, of course, all over the country, from high net worth individuals, angel investors as well. NATO recently launched, and this is one of James Apatharai's real passions and leadership efforts, launched a 1 billion euro fund to invest in deep tech and in startups. And that way, kind of not replicating, but something analogous maybe to what China has done and is doing consistently, which is the Chinese government has access over all data and technology from any startup. That's not the way it is in the West where property rights are very, very different. But the net result is that it does provide an advantage in China when it comes to integrating technological advances into the defense and cybersecurity infrastructure of the country. And NATO is getting in this business. Some of you might be familiar with DARPA, which is the U.S. government version from the Defense Department that for years has funded startups and innovation. So there are precedents for this. Actually, if you think about it, James will say this, kind of amazing. He said, pick up your phone, your iPhone, let's say, or your Android phone, and look at the technologies that are built into it. And something like a dozen of the most important technologies that are in our iPhone got their start, got their creation 
from government funding of some sort, which is really kind of amazing. So it's a really interesting episode today. We're going to talk about what's really going on in Ukraine. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about Russia's and China's technological strategies in an ongoing war, soft or hard war, depending on what part we're talking about with the West. So there's a lot to talk about. And James Apatharai is incredibly knowledgeable and personable, and he's going to be our guide. On today's episode of the SIDCast, James Apatharai. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's a real pleasure for me to be talking to James Apatharai. Hi there, James. Hi, great to be here with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Oh, it's great to have you. I've already shared a little bit about your background. There's a lot to talk about. I guess we should really start with some of your take on Ukraine. And I know you're not an expert on war, but you are an expert on all kinds of technology and cybersecurity and all kinds of other things that may very well be happening in Ukraine right now with respect to emerging technology. So what could you say, first of all, about the status of the situation and how we in the West, what our role is and whether we're getting some progress? Because this is July 11th as we record this and there are ups and downs. The war hasn't been going particularly well, I would say, for Ukraine and for the West in the last week or two. What's your thought about that? Where are we now? Well, I think you're absolutely right to say that there have been some setbacks for the Ukrainians in the days before you and I are talking right now. But I think we also need to put it into the larger perspective. There were a lot of people, including people, honestly, in this building at NATO who are military experts by any standards, who really feared that the Ukrainians weren't going to last a week. And I heard that from many people. Instead, they're still standing. And President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, I mean, I'll speak for myself here and not for NATO, but they really reminded us what it is to fight for yourself, for your values, for your security. And they're doing remarkably well in that context. They're a little country. They had a bit taken away by Russia already in 2014. They have been resisting heroically and in some cases taking back some territory. So what's happening now? Russia has far more in the way of resources than Ukraine has or will have. And they can just keep going. They can keep grinding away, but they have not achieved the aims that they manifestly were targeting at the beginning, including, of course, Kiev. They made a move on Kiev, they lost, had to pull back. And that was absolutely crucial. And now what's happening is, of course, on the one hand, the Ukrainians are losing just hundreds of people every day, either dead or injured every day. And there's only so long you can sustain that. On the other hand, more and more Western equipment is getting into their hands and that's all going to ramp up. And that is high-end equipment, in many cases, more capable than Russian equipment. A lot of the high-end Russian equipment has been depleted or lost. So there's an argument to be made that this is going to continue for quite some time. And I think that is probably the predominant opinion. So is Ukraine losing? No. Is Russia winning? No. Is either side winning? No. It's also clear is that we're going to be supporting Ukraine for as long as it takes. So there's a lot of countries, like 40 plus countries, politically and militarily supporting Ukraine now. Pretty much everyone or almost everyone thought this is going to be quick and very unfortunate. And it wasn't, as you point out, even though it's in a tough place, Russia's big and powerful country. One thing that a lot of people have been wondering about is with all of the history of Russian hacking and cybersecurity issues, and maybe it's been going on and the West has been really good at dealing with this, but we kind of expected more attacks stateside, if you will. And I don't just mean in the United States, but in the West. Again, maybe it's been going on and we've been good at making sure it didn't get through, but that's been a vulnerability that's been clear for quite some time. So is it going on? 
Are they holding back? What's their strategy and what are they doing now with respect to cybersecurity? And I want to ask you about that in Ukraine as well, both ways, because Ukraine is a pretty advanced technological country as well. But first part is about Russia on cyber attacks on the West. On the rest of us. Yeah, that's a great question. And you know that so many people are asking that question. I'll give you the take from here. You're right that I do cyber security here at NATO, so I have some attention to it. I would say a couple of things. One is let's not underestimate the long, long years of Russian cyber interference into our countries, including the electoral process in the United States, including ransomware attacks all over Europe and the United States and Canada. And ransomware attacks, people need to recognize that it's not just about collecting money and it's not just about shutting down this or that so that you can extort what you want. It's very often about implanting basically cyber Trojan horses into places where if things get really bad, the Russians or other actors can turn the key and shut off the electrical system or the water system or the transport system. So it's very much targeted against critical infrastructure hospitals. That definitely happens. So there's what is happening. And then there's the ground that's being prepared for something worse. And that's happening all the time. And that's publicly available. There's other information that's not publicly available, but it all goes in the same direction. But why hasn't it been worse? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is in the context of Ukraine. What Russia doesn't want is to drag NATO or any particular country, starting with the U.S., more directly into this fight. They don't want a direct problem between us and them. To be honest, we also don't want direct hostilities between Russia and the West because that's a whole different problem and a greater level of threat. So Russia is, in my view, quite clearly trying not to take steps that would provoke a much greater Western reaction against what's going on. When I say what's going on in Ukraine, I mean their illegal, unprovoked war on and in Ukraine. So that's one, I think, major constraint. Second is many experts will say they're saving that for if there really is a problem between Russia and the West. Then they have a whole set of other tools that they wouldn't want to use now, but would want to use then. And then the third reason is, of course, whatever they can do, we can do. And if they unleash this, they're going to get it back and maybe something different that it would be in response to that. And what we have said at NATO anyway, is that a single cyber event or an accumulation of cyber events, cyber attacks can reach a level which we consider to be armed attack and which can therefore trigger Article 5. So we don't necessarily say that a cyber attack against one of our countries would be responded to only with a cyber attack. We will judge what the response will be and the accumulation of smaller cyber incidents can become one and therefore get a bigger response from us. So for all these reasons, I think Russia is not taking the step to raise the threshold of cyber attacks against us. Then you ask about Ukraine, and that's a different story, obviously related, but different. The first thing is to say that Russia has been conducting cyber attacks against Ukraine at least since 2014 when it invaded and took Crimea. And that has been attacks against the banking system, against critical infrastructure, against essential government services. Then in the day before they actually attacked, they took down the Viasat satellite communication system to try to stop Ukrainians from being able to communicate. What that did, of course, was roll out to tens of thousands of computers outside of Ukraine as well and cause real physical damage to them. Then since the war started, they have conducted nonstop cyber attacks against all those elements of Ukrainian society, but also directly linked to kinetic attacks. So cyber attack, 
physical attack, for example, against electrical substations, against the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia. And this is, again, publicly available information. I commend people to go and look at what Microsoft has put up publicly. They know very well what's going on. And it's not just therefore NATO saying it. So this has been part of the Russian playbook since 2014. It is absolutely part of the Russian playbook now. And then, sorry to keep talking, and you can stop me if I'm talking too much, but how has Ukraine defended? Yes. First thing to say is they're really good at it. And you pointed it out yourself. This is a tech savvy country with a tech savvy population. Second is they've been preparing for years. They got invaded in 2014. They saw this coming. So they got a lot of training from us, from the Americans, the Canadians, the Brits and others. Third reason is industry. Western tech firms have really stepped up and I want to commend them with very little publicity, if not none in most cases. They have been very active in helping the Ukrainians to defend themselves in the cybersphere. So backing up their servers from inside Ukraine where they can be struck by a missile into the cloud where the Western countries can defend them. You saw Elon Musk famously has put Starlink in there to allow people to communicate with each other, which is really important. And there's a million other examples I could use, but the companies aren't talking about them, so I won't. And then just to conclude, why is this important? It's important because every element of Ukraine's defense rests on a cyber platform. The fact that they can communicate with each other means they know when the attacks are coming or what to do when an attack has come. They know if their loved ones are alive, they know where to go. The fact that essential government services are working means they can take money out of the bank. They can fill up their cars and flee if they need mm -hmm. The fact that President Zelensky can get on the air means he can motivate his people and motivate us to provide the military equipment they're using to fight and defend themselves. So cyber is an essential part of this whole war. Russia is attacking using cyber. Ukraine is defending its cyber platform and we are helping NATO too. We've hooked up Ukraine to our malware information system so we can tell them when there's malware in their system. We've connected them to our cyber center of excellence so that they can help train and equip them. And allies are in there too. So everybody's on the team to help them and it's working. It's actually amazing that Russia, as advanced as they are in so many ways, and we're talking about cyber and technology, either have chosen not to or have not figured out a way to get through these defenses in Ukraine. Because even with Western support, it's still not as if you're attacking Canada, United States, Britain, France. There's still more vulnerability in Ukraine. Part of it is that, as you say, missiles don't hit the cloud, but it's not that everything is going to be defended perfectly done. Do you think there's any holding back in that respect by the Russians in Ukraine or it's just the defenses have been that strong? Now we're getting a little bit into guesswork. I'm pretty sure that they have more in their arsenal. I'd say there might be two reasons why they haven't used it. One is the next level can be very destructive. You can conduct cyber attacks that don't physically destroy or damage the system you're attacking. The Russians have been careful not to do that in part because they might want to use it. I think they had plans that they would be quickly in charge and then this infrastructure would be there for them to use. Well, that may not be the case anymore, but I think that that was the idea at the beginning. It's also the case that these more destructive attacks can get out of control. As I mentioned with the Biosat attack, they can roll out. There was one attack by Russia against Ukraine in 2017 called Notetya. Again, people can Google it, it's quite public. It also rolled out way beyond Ukraine's borders. And then everybody got upset and angry with Russia as a result. So they seem to be trying to avoid doing that. And then the final reason I would say is once you unleash a cyber weapon, everybody knows you have it. Everybody knows how it works. 
And then everybody else has it too. In other words, once it's out in the wild, well, then you get to copy it, modify it and use it yourself. So they may not want to put everything on display because once it's used in an attack, it's on full display. So these may be some of the reasons why. Right. That last point is particularly interesting because when you use some new weapon that's not digital or cyber, the other side can't just take it. They could reverse engineer, they could bring it alive. It's not the same. But when it comes to something in cyber, it's really interesting that you could. So that goes the other way around as well for anything that the West has. The Russians are certainly capable of that. When we talk ahead of time, just to lay the groundwork for our conversation, there are a few other big emerging technologies that we briefly touched on. I'm very interested in your take on them and also how they're fitting into the Russia-Ukraine attack of the war. Artificial intelligence and big data, for example. We talk about those as emerging technologies. The truth is that when they continue to emerge, not that they're ever finished, but they're everywhere in business. Certainly AI is, it's growing and big data has been around for a while. How does that fit into Ukraine and the defense of Ukraine and what Russians are doing there? One of the things we've been doing here at NATO from my division is trying to share with colleagues, and then that includes in delegations from nations that are here. Indeed, yeah, these are emerging technologies, but they've also emerged. So to give you examples, the Ukrainians are using artificial intelligence and big data exploitation to listen to the unencrypted communications by the Russian soldiers to sort of get rid of the noise and get the interesting and useful information like where they are and where they're going to go. They're using facial recognition technology to identify individual Russian soldiers for the now thousands of war crimes trials or at least packages that they're preparing for war crimes trials. They're able to identify the individual soldier using facial recognition technology. They are 3D printing GPS guiding fins that they can put onto dumb bombs and then use those. They are using, and actually the whole world is using, commercially available satellite technologies to see exactly what the Russians are moving in and out of Ukraine in terms of military equipment. Mm -hmm. These emerging technologies have now become very much part of warfare now. But I also discussed with you in our prep discussion, quantum. And that's another one yes. which I would just draw people's attention to. And I know quantum unless people have seen Ant-Man, is generally <laughs> not something they pay much attention to. And I was exactly the same, except for Ant-Man. But now I have taken over responsibility for this. You know, I have a lot of very smart people who try to explain it to me, and I'm starting to get it. And I don't understand the complexities of the technology or the physics of it, because it's honestly pretty hard to understand. But what I do start to understand are the security and military implications. And I draw attention to them because both artificial intelligence and quantum are technologies which Russia and China have publicly at the top level, the level of president, identified as national priorities. And they've the two presidents, Xi and Putin, have identified them as priorities because they know that they're game changing. So artificial intelligence we discussed and, and we can discuss more, but I think people get the point. Quantum is important in a couple of areas. One is quantum computing. It just means the computer is literally thousands of times more powerful and faster to arrive at calculations with all the implications of that than a regular supercomputer now. And so everybody's trying to get there first. But the point of a computer is what it can do. So I'll give you two examples. One is quantum encryption. We encrypt communications. The most important communications like nuclear command and control are the most encrypted. Whoever gets to quantum encryption first, who can crack quantum encryption first, wins the whole game, can decrypt all of our encrypted communication. So everything everybody's saying, including nuclear command and control, 
and not just decrypt it and listen to it, but actually corrupt it so we can't have confidence in the orders that are being given. Imagine that scenario. Of course, the same goes in the other direction. So whoever gets to quantum encryption first is in a massive position of advantage strategically. And all of the superpowers are investing heavily in this. There's another aspect called position navigation and timing. What it means is you know where everything is all the time. You don't need GPS. You don't need satellites. You don't need tracking. You know where your opponent's submarines are, where their aircraft is in a GPS or whatever version of GPS denied environment. And they don't know where you are. So again, massive advantage. I won't go into the science. It gets pretty amazing, like quantum teleportation. I'm sure that's going to be in Ant-Man 3. The point is, these emerging technologies are really, really important, and we have to invest heavily in them. Okay, now I got to ask you about this quantum. You hear the word, you hear about quantum physics, but it's far removed from my expertise as well. So let's just say Russia, China, and the US, not just, but let's just say, are all doing research to figure out this quantum thing that has a gigantic advantage you just described. Unless that advantage is sustainable for any period of time, and so this is a question, even though I'm saying it's a statement, (laughs) it's actually not that powerful or important because if it's an advantage for some period of time and you choose to take advantage of it, which is really a terrible thing to think about because it means you could launch a nuclear war because you think you're going to win or something equivalent to that. Putin is Putin, you know, who knows? But you still have to think it's very low probability that anyone really wants to do that because the fallout is around the world and the implications. You do that, you got to win and win 100% because there will be retribution. And so in a way, this quantum capability that could potentially render even nuclear weapons unusable is a strange form of mad, mutually assured destruction, but a way of maybe reducing, I don't know if this makes sense, reducing mutually assured destruction. It means that nuclear weapons are no longer as powerful because you can do this kind of magical quantum thing and you guys can't do anything to us, we can't do anything to you. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So that's a strange question, but I'm going to ask you that anyways. (laughs) I wish I saw it that way. I don't think I see it that way because what we rely on when it comes to at least nuclear issues, and then I'll come to non-nuclear issues, is exactly what you talk about, which is mutually assured destruction. But it also, as a system, relies on your own internal command and control and communication systems being reliable for you. So you can assure destruction, but if you don't know whether your communications are reliable within your own system, then how can you know what to do? You're paralyzed. And if your opponent isn't because you haven't got there first, they have a strategic advantage. So what does that mean? And now I'm really into speculation, right? So I don't want people to get all nervous that this is going to happen. It's not happening now. Not to worry about it, but we, places like NATO, we need to game out what could happen. And if you look at what Russia has done now over Ukraine, they have done exactly what those of us who follow Russian doctrine expected them to do, which is make a conventional military move and a nuclear threat. And the nuclear threat is there to paralyze you, is to tell you, don't respond. Because if you do, well, you know, we might nuke you. So they've made nonstop nuclear threats, as you know, throughout the Ukraine crisis. As I said, we expected it and we've done what we need to do and we're not being put off by this. But if all of our internal communications were apparent to whatever opponent and we couldn't rely on the menace of the backup, the absolute ultimate guarantee of mutually assured destruction, it creates a huge amount of uncertainty and instability into 
very tense situations like the ones that we find ourselves in now. I think when it comes to artificial intelligence, all three of the countries that you mentioned, US, Russia and China are investing very heavily. I think when it comes to quantum and to a certain extent, AI, it is really the United States and China that are in the lead. When you look at the number of PhDs graduating in these areas, when you look at the publications, when you look at the number of patents, actually those are the two main powers, which I actually find slightly reassuring when you consider Russia's total unpredictability. But Russia is actually invested very heavily, especially in AI. And President Putin has said, I'm paraphrasing here, but whoever wins when it comes to AI will rule the world. It's something like that. You can Google it. They're very invested in this as well. But it is definitely China and the U.S. in the lead. You mentioned China. Obviously, we're in a mega strategic competition with them. Things have changed and not for the better in the last few years. What's your take? What's NATO's take on this? What should we be doing? What can be done? Because one of the problems here is for people that are not privy to what's going on behind the scenes, which is, say, almost everyone, you scratch your head and say, we have Google, we have Amazon, we have Facebook, we have Apple, we're pretty good at this stuff. I mean, China's pretty good too. We have a lot. And it just seems like they're spying, they're taking our stuff. I don't know whether I want to know that we're doing the same thing or not. I guess I do. I don't like losing on these things when I feel like we got the better team. And I don't know if that's going to be the case in 10 years or five years or 50 years, but I don't think there's any more technologically advanced country today than American by extension, NATO. I think you're right, but I think we should no longer use the sort of comforting statement that I used to hear that China doesn't invent, it just steals, it doesn't innovate, it just copies. Actually, I don't think that's true. I'm not sure it was ever true. And historically, it is certainly not true. But I don't think it's true now either. Maybe that was a phase. They are stealing. There is a huge amount of cyber theft of intellectual property, as well as actual theft of intellectual property and all sorts of intelligence services and governments are taking steps to try to restrict that within NATO. But they are also heavily investing in their own education system and producing innovations. And I would commend to you, for example, to look at their recent test of a hypersonic glide missile with capabilities that nobody knew they had and that we don't have to be very open with you. So yeah, they can invent things as well. So what are we doing? I'd say there's a few things we need to look at. Cut me off if you think I'm going to talk too long, but there's a lot to talk about. From a military point of view, just in one sentence, NATO does not assess that China poses a military threat to NATO, nor do we pose a military threat either in intent or in capability to China. So let's just move that off. We are deeply concerned by their growing strategic partnership with Russia, including how they are supporting Russia's political positions and to a certain extent enabling what Russia is doing to Ukraine. When it comes to technology, we need to raise our game. I think we have been a little bit naive in terms of offering access to all parties, which is fine in the scientific world if everybody's playing by the rules. But if they're not, then it's open to abuse. And we've seen abuse, including by China and Chinese companies. So what do we need to do? One is to build in all these protections in intellectual property that's being done. Second, we need to compete better. And that includes having access to startups. China has a policy of what they call civil military fusion, meaning the Chinese government has access to all the technology of any Chinese company, full stop. They also have access to all the data that goes through Chinese servers or any servers in China, full stop. This is a huge advantage in a world of artificial intelligence and big data exploitation. These things go together. So what do we need to do about it? One is, as I say, we need to have a much stronger relationship with the, as you rightly say, 
very advanced, innovative startup communities in the West. So at NATO, we just launched in the last few days at our NATO summit, two major innovations. One is what we call DIANA. So it stands for Defense Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic. For those who know what DARPA is in the US, it's like a transatlantic DARPA. It's a network connecting two NATO headquarters, test centers and accelerator sites across North America and Europe and startups. So what we're going to do is to say, okay, every year, these are five problems we need solved. For example, climate change and security. We're going to be sending our soldiers into hotter environments. They have to do more disaster relief, whatever it is. Startups, can you provide us with dual use technologies that can help us meet this challenge? And then we'll go out to them. We're going to pay them to work for us for six months, meet the end users. We're going to provide them with access to reliable funding. In other words, funding where it's not coming from a country which will then use the venture capital funding track to extract the data. We're going to give them rapid contracting. We're going to give them access to all 30 NATO markets out the gate. As soon as they get through Diana, they have access to these markets. And we launched at the Madrid summit a 1 billion euro innovation fund. So we launched a unicorn. 22 countries in NATO are putting money into it. More are going to come. And this fund run by a fund manager is going to invest in deep tech, but also in the startups coming out through Diane. So we hope by doing this that we're going to stimulate innovation. We're going to protect our innovation ecosystem. When I say protect, what I mean is protect from acquisition by unfriendly actors, like often Chinese actors, by providing them with reliable funding and education about what to look out for. I say this because, to give you an example, if you're sitting in the Canadian cabinet, like prime minister and minister's offices, mm -hmm. and there's a company that is running out of funding, and a Chinese actor comes and says, look, we're going to give you this. The person running that company has a fiduciary responsibility to take that money. So how do we protect it? And so the cabinet has to say, OK, either we let the company go bankrupt because we impose a security restriction or we let them take the money and they're required. So we need to provide alternatives in terms of funding and support. So we hope to do that through the fund and through Diana. I really like this idea and it's very interesting to me because it runs counter to a whole mindset, certainly in the U.S., that the government shouldn't be doing this. And you've heard this all, I'm sure, various debates. Let's leave it to the greatest venture capital community in the world, Silicon Valley. And why do we as taxpayers, if you will, and government, why do we want to get involved? In it? The answer, you have a better answer than me, but the answer is, well, where did the internet come from in the first place? And what about the NIH in the U.S.? I mean, I'm more familiar with the U.S., but there are many other groups in Canada and Europe that have supported all kinds of important medical advances. And so many of the advances we've had have been because of the role of the government. There's not really an answer to this. It's kind of a strange thing, especially in the U.S., which is purportedly the most capitalist society. I don't believe it is, but there's this mindset that is there. I think you're 100% right. People hear this all the time, and so yeah. they believe it, and that's totally normal. But if you take out your smartphone, everybody's smartphone, uh -huh. I can't remember the list of the 12, because I know it's 12 technologies that are in this phone. All of them come from government originally. The touchscreen was a government invention. The GPRS, which allows the communication of the equipment. GPS, so that you can use your phone for mapping. The thumbprint to get into it. The chip that's inside, the memory chip. 
there's a long list of technologies. All of it came from government. So what the private sector did, packaged it nicely, made it all work super well together. But they didn't invent all those technologies. The list is very, very long. It's not to say that the private sector can't invent things. They do. Of course they do. And all the time. And it's great. But the challenge we have now is, and I think this is really, really important. We're not in the same world we were in 20 years ago. We are now in an era of strategic competition. And that strategic competition is driven by technology. So we just can't leave it to the private sector and the profit motive because you know what? There's big companies in China with deep pockets that can buy a lot of our companies. And we don't want that. We have to protect our industries. And I'll give you a very concrete example, not just protect, but create, which is green tech. Everybody wants us to move towards a greener economy using technologies that are not using fossil fuels. So what do they all depend on? They all depend on minerals and rare earths that are in most cases 80 to 95% controlled by one country, and that is China. They were very smart. I'm not criticizing China. They thought this through 15 years ago. They went around the world acquiring mines, building the processing facilities, building the transport infrastructure. Everybody's heard about Belt and Road. It was in most cases legal. It was certainly not in most cases imposed on anyone. It was strategic. But what's the end result? The end result is the solar panels, the batteries in our cars, the microchips, all depend on one country. So we need to take government decisions to affect the way in which investments are made so that we reshore essential capability, create it if it's not there, and ensure that our supply chains are strong for us. And I think COVID made it very, very clear that we can't continue going the way we were going. China's doing exactly that for itself. So is Russia. We can't be naive and leave everything to the private sector because the only motive is not the profit motive. This idea about, you mentioned supply chain, and as you were talking, before you even said that, I'm thinking, well, that's exactly what we're seeing now. And companies are facing a really big challenge. I think the advanced countries and companies in the world looked for the most efficient supply chains for the last, what's well, been going on for decades, but certainly before COVID, it was close to quote unquote perfection in many places. And it was based on one premise, one primary premise, which is low cost. And so you manufacture everything in China. And it's not just about manufacturing and it's just in time. And what we discovered is we couldn't get any masks. And in Canada, you couldn't get any vaccines, even more serious. And so all of these offshoring that's been going on for a long time, is very, very logical. There is a reassessment going on. I don't know how deep that reassessment will go for many companies that have to report quarterly earnings because there's a cost associated with it. It costs you more to do to do it yourself in the short term than it is to get some supplier from some other place. But the vulnerabilities that have occurred now and continue to occur, I mean, chips for cars even. An inevitable conclusion, at least to me, is that each country, ideally, but if you're too small, then a grouping of countries, and NATO is a perfect example of that, but maybe not the only one, needs to have an independent sources of whatever the critical components are that they need. Just to say a couple of things. What is, I don't think it's each country. You're not wrong because it can work that way. I was up in Finland recently and met with their resilience minister. And Finland is soon to be a NATO country, but we look to them already for what resilience can really be. So if you cut off Finland from the world for six months, they can survive. They have six months supplies of everything, medicine, food, fuel, military equipment. They're okay. They know that it can happen. But how do they do it? And this comes back to exactly what you were saying. Every six months, industry leaders 
sit down with government leaders. They get an intelligence report about what could happen and how they need to build resilience. So the private sector sits with the public sector. The heads of the companies, the private companies, recognize consciously that they're part of society. They have a societal responsibility to make sure that the society is resilient. So they stockpile things. It doesn't necessarily get them profit, but they know that it makes a better business environment, that this country is a solid place to invest because everybody's working together to ensure resilience. So what are we doing at NATO? We have seven, what we call baseline resilience requirements that we've put to all the NATO countries to say, look, you need to be resilient in the following areas, like ensuring sufficient energy supply for your population. Like you need to be able to move stuff around, transport. You need to be resilient in these particular ways when it comes to things like medicine, et cetera. So we can't impose that on the allies, but we give them these baselines and say, we really think you should get to this level. And they have responded. The EU does something very similar. EU can also impose. What I wanted to say was, Yes, individual countries, but actually I think what is more important is that North America and Europe, we are allies. This is a big market, a big population. We each have different strengths. We need to be able to rely on each other, not just expect Belgium to have stockpiles of everything, but design it out so that Canada, the US and the European countries, and I don't just mean EU, EU and NATO countries can rely on each other. And that's what we're trying to do with good NATO-EU coordination. That's a tough one, though, James, because if you think about what happened during COVID, vaccines were not being shared super fast because, I mean, that's the ultimate test, life and death test. And we love NATO and Americans love Canada, but you know what? We're not giving it because we need it. That's not going to go away. No, you're right. When push comes to shove, walls go up. But what I think we need to do is take advantage of the moments when push hasn't yet come to shove mm -hmm. to build up the stockpiles and also the systems in place to support each other. So I'll give you another good example. I just left the meeting before coming to talk to you. We have Ukrainians here who are explaining to us, and I was doing this for a couple of hours, the pipeline system, the stockpiles that we have of natural gas, where it's being rerouted, the interconnectors, the different pipelines. I say all this and I want to give credit to the EU. And, you know, it's a little bit difficult for NATO staff to give credit to the EU, but we sometimes do it. The EU since 2014 has been super good at building resilience into the energy infrastructure of Europe so that, for example, if it gets cut off because Russia has choked off supply through Ukraine, which is a reality now, then other energy that's coming in, for example, from the Caspian through Turkey into the system in the south can, because of new interconnectors and reverse flow capabilities, can then actually supply the Ukrainians so that they don't freeze in the winter. And that has happened. So if you do this when times are good, mm -hmm. because you've consciously decided not to just focus on exactly as you say, just in time systems with absolute minimal friction and no resilience. But instead you say, you know what, it's not a great world. We need to build these things in now. When push comes to shove, then you're okay. So we can do all this and we're trying to do this here in NATO with our EU friends as well. I do like the resilience idea. I think it's relevant for companies as well. When you talk about resilience, so for oil and gas, of course, you think about Germany, you think about all of Europe, but you think about Germany's become incredibly dependent on Russia and they're dealing with those decisions that were made at the highest levels. How are they going to get out of this situation? I mean, they don't have enough, it's too big an economy. If Russia turned off all of the oil and gas, what would happen to Germany? 
Germany. What's their game plan and how does NATO fit into that? I know that's a top of mind topic throughout NATO, given everything that's going on. No, you're absolutely right. And obviously I can't speak to German political decisions because of course officials aren't advised to do that. What I can say is, I just heard it again this morning from the German colleague, Germany has decided that it's going to get off Russian oil and gas. They recognize that Russia is certainly no longer a reliable supplier and is using energy as a weapon of coercion. So they're doing their absolute best. You know, they took a decision to get off nuclear power after Fukushima. This has implications for them and their energy diversification. So there are a lot of warnings coming from the very top of the German political system now to the German population that if Russia turns supplies off altogether, then they're going to have some real difficulties this winter. So right now, as you and I are speaking, Russia has closed down supply through Nord Stream 1 for maintenance. This is a actual legitimate maintenance. It happens Mm -hmm. every year at this time. But there's two new things. One is the Russians have not used other supplies, other streams, in other words, through Ukraine, to ensure that Europe has filled up its reserves. So those reserves are lower because Russia is not providing alternate supply. And then there's the other question is, are they going to turn it on again at the end of this maintenance? So everybody's quite concerned about this, but Germans are first and foremost going to be victims of this if it happens. So Mm -hmm. what's going to happen? Everybody is working, NATO, but even more EU and individual countries are working to do their absolute best to prepare for this. Meaning, of course, liquid natural gas. I just want to compliment the U.S. The U.S. doesn't get as much credit as it should get for everything it does for us over here. And one of the things the U.S. did right from the beginning was a substantially ramp up U.S. supply of LNG to Europe. And second, go help us get supplies from elsewhere in places like Egypt, south of the Mediterranean. That's one track, more U.S. supply. Second track is more supply from other sources. Third supply is, as I said, more LNG and storage. But it's going to also mean that we're going to have to reduce consumption. It's doable. The estimations I've seen are that with relatively minor reductions in usage, like turn the thermostat down one degree, maybe two degrees. We don't have heated public swimming pools anymore. You know, it's a bit too bad, but we can live with it. Actually, we can make it through even if Russia cuts everything off. But it'll be complicated. And Germany is going to be first in line, I think, because of their particular exposure to dependence on Russia. And that's not just people. It's also industry. German industry depends on Russian oil and gas as well. But bottom line, just to conclude, there's no more resourceful engineers in this continent than Germans. And they have all the support from everybody around them as well. So if they need help, they're going to get it. And I'm quite sure they know how to figure out solutions. It's not going to be easy as you say, and when it affects business as well as everyday people, it's a gigantic kind of follow-on cycle that could have a lot of negative implications. What we now know, anyone who's paying any attention, let alone someone at NATO, is we and they have to fix that problem, all of Europe. I mean, this is a weird example of Putin's strategy. He's made it clear that Russia is not a reliable business partner, let alone the whole military, but a business partner. And they are an oil and gas economy. I don't know what percentage of GNP it is, but it's a lot. So it goes both ways. There'll be some tough times to get a new equilibrium. But if they can't sell their oil and gas to the same volume they have in the past, that's got to affect them in a very negative way. I'll be honest, I'm not that convinced about that. I know many people say it. Yeah. What's happened now is Russia and Gazprom in particular have lowered supply. What does that do? It drives up prices. And then the prices are, you know, at historical highs. Their coffers are full. 
Then a new equilibrium settles in and then they lower supply again and prices go up again. So they're getting a lot of money right now, more than they got before, even with diminished supply. So I'm less convinced that this is going to have some sort of damaging effect on the Russian economy. But what I really believe is that once we've been through this transition period, which will take a couple of years, that their ability to coerce us is substantially reduced. Once we don't depend on them for energy, it will affect not just our energy security, but it'll affect our politics because then we don't need to feel the same pressure, give in or compromise. They'll have lost mm -hmm. the major political leverage they have over us. And that will affect the way in which countries approach Russia. And I think that that will be extremely important. You touched on climate change briefly. I want to make sure we go back to that because it's such a big, big, important topic in the context of security implications of climate change. And it relates maybe to cyber as well. What do you think and what is NATO doing to try to address what is arguably the most existential threat to the entire world and the implications that are becoming clearer and clearer every year because of climate change? So thanks for asking the question, because I'm really very committed to this issue for all the reasons that you mentioned. And when I changed from my old job, which was more pure diplomacy, and then started taking over this job, I went home and told my kids that I'd be doing cybersecurity and emerging technologies and climate change. And then my son said, finally, you're doing something useful. But I got it from if you're 15, those are the problems you see coming down the tracks at you and, you know, you want them solved. So on climate. What do we see? And I commend to anyone to go to our website because we just put out an assessment of the security implications of climate change, the summit. It's pretty grim. You would expect it to be grim. We've modeled two scenarios, a 1.5 degree increase and a 2.4 degree increase. Both are terrible. And I think everybody knows what the security implications are. But I'll give you a few examples. Lots more disasters and therefore our forces are going to be involved in more and more disaster relief, hurricanes, floods, heat. We're seeing that every day right now. And I just want to say it's not going to increase like this in a straight line. It's going to increase like that. So it can get much worse pretty quickly. Meaning because this is audio more than video for most people, your hand went up in an exponential manner, exactly. not in a gradual linear manner. It's not linear. It's not a naturally aspirated engine when you press the pedal. It's a turbo. It'll lag a little while and then it's going to boost. There's disasters, there's flooding, 40% of the world. And I think a higher percentage of our economic activity is within, you know, 10 kilometers of any coastline. A lot of that's going to be battered by water or underwater, including many naval facilities. The Arctic is opening up with all of the security implications that that entails. Our forces are going to have to operate in much greater heat when it's bad for the people and the equipment doesn't work and the oceans will be warmer, meaning the ships shut down. There's a long list. So what are we going to do about it? There's two things we need to do about it. One is adapt and one is mitigate. So how are we adapting? And you'll see all of this as well in our website. We put some of the things that are public, some aren't. But basically, we're going to have to adapt our forces to do more disaster relief because they are doing it. So we need to train and equip them to do it. We need to do what we need to do to protect our coastal facilities, including our naval facilities. So one of our major NATO naval bases, one of the biggest and most important for NATO, has been flooded nine times in the last 12 years. That's a big problem. We need to give our soldiers the equipment they need from personal equipment to machines to be able to operate in these extreme environments. Like it's one thing to operate in Iraq when it's 35 degrees. It's another one. It's 52 degrees. It also means that they're not going to have access to water. So there's all of that. We need the equipment for operating in the Arctic. So 
there's all kinds of adaptation measures that we will be putting in place that's already started, but we're going to do more of that. Then finally, there's the question of mitigation. How do we, NATO, contribute towards net zero? So the Secretary General announced that we are going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I have to say we're starting with carbon. We're going to try to expand that. For the NATO enterprise, so that's all the NATO bases, NATO facilities, NATO fleets, by 46% by 2030, with the aim to reach by 2050 net zero, while maintaining military effectiveness. And I just want to pause at that sentence for a second. Mm. Military effectiveness has to come first because we are in a dangerous world and our potential adversaries or adversaries don't seem to be concerned about cutting their greenhouse gas emissions at all. And certainly not when it comes to their military. So we cannot tie our military's arms behind their backs. They have to defend us first and foremost. If we don't have security, we will not have climate change improvements. We will not have reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. Russia's war on Ukraine shows exactly what's happening. A lot of countries are going back to coal because there's insecurity when it comes to gas. So we need to make cuts. But first and foremost, we have to ensure military effectiveness. We have ways to do that. We just want to make sure we do that by not investing in green tech, which makes us then dependent on another unreliable supplier, which we already discussed. So that's what we're trying to do. Analyze, adapt, mitigate. This point about not compromising military preparedness, I mean, it's two tough things, but you can't do that. I think everyone gets that. And various implications that you described, I'm sure you study this and have a lot of experts, but I'd be willing to bet that there will still be things that none of us are predicting that are going to happen because that's the way the world is. Hopefully they won't be worse. Maybe if it's unpredictable, it doesn't always mean a bad thing, but there will be some. And when your 15-year-old son says what he says to you, I think there's a lot of 15-year-old kids and parents of 15-year-olds listening and they're saying, oh man, how'd we end up in this situation? But we did. And there you have it. We've been talking about a lot of really serious and difficult things. And I don't want to depress all of our listeners because there's a lot of positives. There's a lot of kind of amazing things. And actually, one of the things you said early on on the incubation fund and the effort to support technology is one of them as we get close to wrapping up our conversation. I do want to end on a positive note, and I'm going to turn to you to help us do that. Most of what you do is looking at disaster and trying to avoid really bad things. So we want people like you doing that, but people also need to know, need to feel like the future is going to be actually better in some ways, despite all these things. And I know that's also something you think about as not just in your role, but also as a parent. So um, open-ended question on what that might look like. What are some examples or what are some of the positive stories or initiatives that you're seeing or that you're spearheading that you could share with our listeners? There are positive stories. And sometimes by the time I've finished at a dinner party, everybody goes home and takes Prozac. So <laughs> I sometimes feel like the Grim Reaper because we look at bad stuff all day. But I'll give you a couple of examples. When it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and this question about military effectiveness, it is, for example, perfectly plausible to use synthetic fuels for military equipment that produce exactly the same amount of power and range, but 80% less when it comes to carbon emissions. This exists. And a good example is a Swedish Gripen fighter plane just flew 100% on biofuel with no loss of power or range. So you can do it. So the technology exists and the raw material exists. What doesn't exist yet is sufficient processing. 
So the price is high and there isn't that much of it. And the logistical chain to get the raw materials like cooking oil and whatever. And I don't mean any more the rainforest. It's just any organic material. I had a chat with a very, very big aircraft company that produces military aircraft. And they said, look, we want to fly on synthetic fuels also. There's not enough. If you, the military, say that you're going to move towards more synthetic fuels, it'll send the demand signal to industry and they're going to make the processing. So what did we do at the summit? We decided that all NATO militaries are going to start moving towards using synthetic fuels in aircraft. And that'll help both the airline industry and us send a signal to industry to build it. So that's going to happen. And I'm quite confident it'll happen. So this is just an example of how technology can actually help us solve our problems. Another example, which is not a NATO example, but I just use it sometimes when I'm talking to young audiences to say, look, think about what's possible, is nuclear fusion. So right now we use fission. It's dangerous, produces waste. People are opposed to it. So for the first time in the last six months, experiments on nuclear fusion are producing more energy than what goes into conducting the experiment. So it's a critical change in the way in which this technology is actually delivering results. So I believe that as we start to really ramp up AI, real big data, powered by real quantum computing, there will be historic and positive changes taking place. Technology is obviously posing a lot of risks, a lot of negatives, but it has huge potential to change things for the better. And we can see concrete examples of where it's happening. So people should sleep a little bit better as a result. Thank you for that, James. Time to wrap up. And I want to ask one last question. People are always interested in the journeys that people take in their lives and their careers and how they ended up where they ended up, but also what they learned along the way. And there's an endless number of things. Hopefully we all learn all the time. But the question I want to ask you is if you could magically go back in time to when you were, let's say, 20 years old, so in college somewhere, you could magically go back and whisper in your ear, there's one thing, 20-year-old James, there's one thing you really want to know or you really want to think about that you could not have known or probably didn't know then, but you certainly have known now because we learn. And you'd say, it would have been good if I understood this a little bit better. What might that be? What would that advice be to 20-year-old James? I think I would have told 20-year-old James to invest in some Apple stock and maybe Tesla, but okay. Yes. <laughs> assuming, <laughs> assuming that that didn't happen. I'll say one thing for those who are younger and wanting to get into at least the business I'm in. I took political science and I took history. And I thought that the political science would be what was useful for me as a diplomat and a defense official. Actually, my experience has been, and I would have told myself to focus on that. My experience has been that the history, which seemed like a nice thing to read, mm -hmm. has been absolutely essential to understanding everything that's going on in the world. It's what everybody is fighting about. Mm -hmm. It's what everybody is arguing about. It's why people are the way they are. So if you want to understand anybody, if you want to do anything international, actually what I would have told myself and what I do tell students is actually the history of where you want to go. That's how you will become a good diplomat, a good political scientist, is not by learning abstract theories about politics, but learning about where people come from. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's not just about being, you know, a diplomat, but understanding the historical context of whatever field we happen to be interested in is just really useful. That's great advice. James, thanks so much for being on the SIDCast. We've all learned a lot. And I guess we feel pretty good that people like you are paying a lot of attention to these things. And we're all going to be watching the news and hopefully see a better or improving situation in Ukraine. And again, I appreciate all of your time and all of your work. James Patharai, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.